Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, sheltering in place and ready to talk about Star Trek Picard. With me today is Steve Pugh and Christine Peake. How are you guys both doing in your respective parts of California? Christine? Hey Josh, also sheltering in place and happy to talk about Star Trek. Steve, buddy? Hey guys, sheltering steady here as well and very happy to be able to talk about some fun stuff. Yes, this is, uh, it's delightful to actually have Star Trek on, and uh, I was really happy overall with the first season of Picard. You'll find out the things that bothered me uh, after we do some legal analysis, but uh, let's jump in, and, and uh, Christine put together the first round of notes, and, and Steve added some comments as well, and so the, the first point that, that we should discuss is that Narek, you know, the hot Romulan, uh, admits to killing Saga, the uh, golden, nice android, and while he did not strike the fatal blow, what's his liability for her death? Christine, since you, you brought this to us, what, what's your take on this? So I think that Narek is still in a fair amount of trouble. Um, again, we, we talked a little bit about the implausibility last week of Narek being over, being able to overpower Saga. And I think even with the little clip we see, we're still going to have to suspend our disbelief a little bit for purposes of this analysis and just assume that Narek was actually doing something effective here because he seems to be. Um, but I can think of several ways that Narek could possibly end up being punished the same as if he had actually just committed murder in the first degree. Um, so the first way um, would be conspiracy, conspiracy to commit murder. Um, conspiracy is an inchoate uh, type of offense. And then another such offense is aiding and abetting murder in the first degree by sutra. Um, and then finally, although um, California made some statutory changes to its felony murder rule, um, he could possibly be liable for um, felony murder, even considering those changes. So with that as the intro, um, you know, let's, let's talk about these. So conspiracy to commit murder, um, it actually requires a couple different kinds of intent, intent to agree um, to unlawfully kill and, and intent to commit the target offense of murder, plus an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. And here, you see in episode nine, Narek and Sutra have this conversation about her need for his services. And the viewers don't get to hear the rest of the conversation, but it can be implied from the circumstances that if you had been able to listen to that conversation um, and from the circumstances of Saga's immediate death, um, that Narek has in some way agreed to help Sutra kill Saga. He actually does admit at one point to, to killing one of the synths. Um, you see the video of him holding Saga down so that Sutra can stab her. Um, it's maybe a little unclear whether he knows that stabbing Saga and I will actually kill her, but all of the circumstantial evidence um, and the video evidence looks very, very bad. Um, and so that could potentially put him in the position of being punished in the same, in the same manner um, as, as that prescribed for murder in the first degree, um, which in the case of conspiracy would be, um, it would be the punishment for first degree murder without special circumstances. So I don't 
I don't think Narek would be eligible for the death penalty on this theory, but it's possible he could be under those other two theories um, because there's maybe some special circumstances that apply. So um, Josh, do I remember correctly that you were talking earlier about mayhem? Yeah. yeah for like one of the episodes? Out, yeah, ripping out eyes what and you, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, it seems to be implicated here as well. Um, so, so that it does require a few additional additional things. So it's it, it can't be too much overlapping with the intent to to um, intent to kill. So if it, it can't just be, for example, that oh, Sutra chose a particularly brutal way to to kill her. She there has to be some kind of intent for. Um, to, to cause the, the disfigurement um, that is that is separately evaluated from the intent to specific intent to kill. So, but for example, if that special circumstance applied under an aiding and abetting theory, um, there's a California statute that um, could possibly make Narek death eligible under that theory, and that same statute could possibly do the same thing if you try to get him on felony murder with the, the predicate felony being the mayhem. So there's a lot of complicated aspects of that statute, but that's my quick summary. And, and well done. So it's, you know, it's more than just being able to say like, yep, he did it and he admitted to it because you know, the law is complicated and it has you know, words and subparagraphs. Steve, do you, do you have any thoughts on Narek's culpability? I think uh, Christine covered a lot there, and she's very accurate. The one that jumped out at me initially was really the felony murder, um, which is often a broad net that we can use, that, you know, the law uses catch a lot of people, um, which, you know, the, the basic rule is that if in the commission of a felony, there is a occurs, let's say a bank robbery, and you're one of the bank robbers, and someone's killed during that bank robbery, even if you're not the one that pulls the trigger, you are still liable for that person's um, death, for that person's murder. You know, the point being um, to discourage the commission of felonies, of course. So there's that deterrence element to that. Um, I, you know, I, I there definitely could be a strong case uh, for felony murder here, you know, whether the felony be that they were intent, you know, Narek was certainly trying to do up to no good there. And we know he's trying to eventually um, destroy this transmitter, which depending on your point of view is good or bad. Um, he's out to, you know, he still thinks Soji is the destroyer trying to kill her. Surprised that she's still alive. You know, he's certainly trying up to, up to no good. The aiding and abetting, the conspiracy, you know, those are certainly possible. I think we just need to know a little bit more there. You know, how much did the two of them, did uh, Narek and Sutra, you know, did they conspire here? You know, we're not really privy to the conversation or any conversation they may have had. So we don't know what kind of agreement they had or what their plans were. Uh, however, you know, when Sung is able to access the um, the memory and you know the the video and I, I presume there's audio I guess we don't know um, of from Saga you know maybe maybe we could learn a little more there but it, we as the audience are, are kept in the dark 
Yeah, and it still bothers me, and this goes to some of my criticisms of it, of what was the the game plan here of letting Narek out? Was it just to, you know, create a, a uh, scapegoat situation of, look, he killed, you know, one, our, one of our own, therefore we have to ob- obliterate all organic life in the universe. That still is a bit extreme and it doesn't really highlight what the goal was of of their conspiring together so yeah that just really confused me and kind of bothered me because there's uh you know letting Narek live is part of the reason why the conspiracy fails so if Sutra wanted a scapegoat, you know, she kills um, Saga and then kills Narek and puts him in a box and, and, uh, and that nobody will find him. And, but that's not what she does. So again, it's, it's, she has a bad plan if she's going to let the loose end escape so he can try to stop her. It's really bizarre. It's also kind of a bad plan if she lets, I mean, does she not realize that Saga's recording this? The whole thing's on video. Yeah, it, it's, she didn't like destroy the cerebral cortex, you know, the neural net, so there, it, the data cannot be recovered. On one level, this is a nice discovery lesson in computer forensics of nothing's really deleted or you're gonna to have to work a lot harder to delete it, uh, maybe do a DOD type wipe on her hard drive, but that's not what happens here. And uh, Sutra assumes that Soong won't try, you know, archiving uh, uh, Saga's memories. So again, that's just bad plan, which goes to with the issue of bad writing. <laughs> I think that the the plan that Sutra had made some sense in that she she figured they had she had to sacrifice a sister in order to galvanize the other synthetics into action and you know in that sense they're not unlike the humans unfortunately cold and calculating uh, but yeah why leave Narek alive I don't know I mean try to pin it on him I suppose at that point and say look you know he escaped I suppose she could have killed him and said oh well you know in the struggle they both died. You know, perhaps she could have come up with some some better formulation there. Um, you know, who knows? <laughs> the the other thing, the other point though about um, uh, you know why not wipe uh, Saga's memory or the recording? I I have to think that we live in a very uh, visual digital age, and there are video cameras everywhere recording almost everything. I would I can only imagine in the 24th century it's much the same way that there have got to be security cameras around this compound I mean how have they survived for so long otherwise so there should be at least be a reasonable chance that <clears throat> Sutra's um, killing of Saga was captured by another video device somewhere yeah it's weird it's weird and that just goes to come up with a tighter storyline uh, so it makes a little bit more sense about what happens. Uh, but let's let's 
pivot to this with uh, the other creepy Romulan who's too interested in her brother's sex life. And uh, that's Nerissa, uh, who apparently was still hanging on the board cube. So when she beamed out, she actually didn't beam to one of the ships. She beamed to another part of the cube, which still seems a little weird because there were all those Romulan warbirds around the the cube. So that just seems weird. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the only logical explanation for how she was still on the cube. Uh, which again, they're massive. So like it's a, so all this action has to be taking place in like a really localized section of the cube. Uh, if not, it's like you need a plane to get from one end to the other, uh, or a really fast Jeffrey's tube or something like that, because that's it's it's a lot of real estate, just a lot of real estate. Now let's, uh, uh, Christine, you also brought up another issue of mutilation. And that's Agnes mutilated Saga's corpse in order to steal Saga's eye, which she, which she, Agnes, then uses to access uh, Maddox's room where Picard's being held under house arrest. Uh, uh, Steve, your thoughts on mutilation, and then then Christine, is that justified <laughs> mutilation? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the term mutilation itself is somewhat charged, um, uh, a little bit loaded, brings to mind sort of grave robbers and things like that. Uh, you know, what we get into here is that once a person is di has died, uh, we almost get into really just observations uh, about respecting the dead. And, you know, what would be the synthetics view of respecting um, the body of their fallen sister? You know, some cultures require or encourage at least family members to spend a couple of nights with the um, with the corpse, or with the body, to sort of keep company, the spirit that is still there, and also to sort of fend off evil spirits. I mean, we're getting into sort of cultural norms rather than legalities. Um, but, you know, the different cultures ha often have laws in their societies that are that are reflected um, or certainly influenced by the culture uh, about how to treat the dead and who can handle them you know there are issues in islamic law about how women cannot handle you know bodies um, certainly when we get to like ancient egypt and stuff you know there are some strict customs to observe there as well so you know what, what we have here is Agnes taking the eye to let her get in, you know, security-wise. That old trick that we see in many movies, retina scan. Oh, how do you defeat a retina scan? Just tear someone's eye out. I mean, we are still making some assumptions that the retina scan can be fooled by a dead eye. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily happen. I, I don't know, um, you know, what, what, uh, how this ret particular retina scan works, but you know, sometimes when uh, a person dies, you know, there are certain functions shut down and uh, they may not operate in the same way. So who knows that that would work in the first place. Um, you know, Agnes is, I, I think we, as we've analyzed in prior episodes, she's already in quite a bit of trouble. She's run afoul of more than her share of rules. I think she's gotten a little more than she had um, she'd bargained for on this trip. And maybe she's at that point where she's just saying, you know, what the heck with it. I'm just going to do 
whatever I need to do at this point uh, to get where I want. So, I don't know, um, you know what, what's one more crime, right? Yeah, it's on one level. It's the, the cute girls can get away with all, with murder, and uh, maybe that's the the message here of uh, don't trust the cute one because she'll rip out an eye in order to get what she needs, and and she does make the comment about uh, I'm really good at this double agent stuff. Who knew? And you now look, look at me be adorable. Look dimples. Uh, there's a little of that, but it, it still raises this weird, you know using the necessity defense to justify desecrating a corpse and uh, assuming that you know Saga has a corpse and that just can't be like repaired. Uh, Christine, do you, do you have more thoughts on this? So I think definitely with the removal of the eye alone, there's probably several California statutes you could try to look to to you know draw some analogy. Um, you know, for example, squishing can be heard, and there is a health and safety code that says every person who willfully mutilates any remains that's say known to be human without authority of law is guilty of a felony. Maybe you could modify that slightly. Um, there's a penal code section 642 that criminalizes and makes a felony willfully and maliciously removing articles of value from, again, a dead human body. Um, and, it depends whether it's petty theft or grand theft, which uh, level it's punishable at. There's another that is kind of more along the lines of the grave robbing that, that Steve alluded to earlier, people who remove or possess dental gold or silver jewelry or mementos, um, possibly also a felony. Um, but again, you know, it's an interesting point that Steve makes is can you, um, can you really analogize? I mean, do you really know how the, the synths would view that same act? Um, would they consider it malicious in the, in the same way that our law treats it that way? But I don't think you can stop there with Agnes because there's certainly other other events in the the chain of her helping Picard escape that could potentially subject her to criminal liability. So, for example, Picard, although it is totally unjustified, technically is on house arrest, and while there are cases in California that talk about um, Situations where a person has been confined without any authority at all, um, uh, possibly being a defense to the crime of escape, that would apply to Picard. But California actually has a different and separately defined crime of aiding an escape. So then you get into a really interesting question of, okay, well, so Picard, Picard could probably have a defense, but if Agnes intends to and has specific intent to aid and escape, does she then somehow get the benefit of that? And it, it, to me, it seems like it probably boils down to a question of factual versus legal impossibility. Um, and this isn't really exactly legal impossibility here. Um, it's just that there's some fact, perhaps unknown to Agnes, that, that shows that, you know, Picard might have a defense. Um, so there's that. Um, you could also try piling on, you know, burglary, aggravated trespass, um, but then you might have to, again, all of that, look at the defense of necessity, which, um, which might actually kind of work here. Um, so again, so this, this doesn't go to negate any of the elements of the aforementioned crimes, just represents a policy decision not to punish Agnes in this situation. Um, if she's 
acting in an emergency to prevent a significant bodily harm or evil to herself or someone else. So you could maybe debate whether the AI threat is sufficiently immediate. Um, but you see later on, by the time they finally do get to the ship, they and they get it in the air, they have minutes left to start making decisions. So maybe it's in, maybe it's sufficiently imminent. Um, she doesn't have a legal alternative. Well, probably not. <laughs> Um, she probably didn't create a greater danger than the one she avoided. Um, when she acted, did she believe the act was necessary to prevent the threatened harm? I think she does because she kind of has to talk herself up. And she says things like, you can do this, you have to do this. Um, so that's probably met too. Um, would a reasonable person have believed that? If they were in her circumstances, perhaps they would. Um, and she has to have not contributed to the emergency. Um, Probably not. Um, if, if she contributed at all, it would have been very attenuated. You know, for example, maybe you could say letting Sutra do the mind meld at all contributed slightly, but Sutra and Soong had the ability to respond to that information in other ways. Um, maybe her false oath could have contributed to the house arrest, but it's a ruse anyways. So I think, um, I actually think her necessity defense looks pretty decent. I would agree with that. I mean, even knocking out the issue that Picard's falsely imprisoned and thus was kidnapped, that she is rescuing him. So I, I think that that gets around that part of the issue. Uh, but yeah, there's there's so much to unpack with uh, Agnes. Uh, <laughs> you know, the impris just before we leave that though, the imprisonment issue is interesting. You know, the way I would see this, I mean, for imprisonment, really, you need to be looking at state action. And for us to look at it that way, we'd have to acknowledge that the synthetics are their own state or government or whatnot. Um, I think the better action would lie for Picard, you know, if he had his own lawyer, to sue for false imprisonment, as you just alluded to, John. You know, wrongful imprisonment, no due process of law, later found to be unjustified. Um, you know, if, uh, if the synthetics are a society of laws, then Picard could have a case here, and I think Agnes would be off the hook for trying to help him, uh, at least for for this crime or the, this action she takes. I think she's probably got a good defense. I don't think that gets her off for all the other actions, but, you know. <laughs> but apparently she is getting a free pass on murder. I was going to say that <laughs> the last scene <laughs> just be happily on the ship giving a you know loving kiss to the captain I, i'm like okay what happened yeah. Yeah, that goes against everything that picard stands for with the rule of law and justice it's that that's that's a giant mulligan for oh <laughs> you know, like and we still haven't determined whether or not she understood the wrongfulness of her actions because it looks like she did oh yeah it's super super disturbing so that aside, let's talk about just turning off, uh, you know, Sutra. And Song walked up to her, distracted her, and uh, used a little device to, we think, deactivate her? Or did he just kill her? And why the hell didn't he use that on Solji, who was, you know, getting ready to exterminate all life in the universe? So, again, that goes to some weird storytelling. Of, uh, so you have this device, this MacGuffin, and you take out one android, but you leave the other one who's 
calling in the AI monster to eliminate all life. So assuming uh, that Sutra was alive and he just offs her, if, if she's dead, was that justifiable homicide of some kind? And if she's deactivated, what does he do with her next? So, uh, uh, Christine, do you want to take the first bite at this apple? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's hard to say this is justifiable homicide, even assuming that, um, assuming for the sake of argument that he has killed her. Although, just just searching around, it does seem like most a lot of people are interpreting it as he's just turned her off. Um, but if he hasn't, um, yeah, uh, you know, again, kind of going to. Um, the issue that, that Steve mentioned is, are, are we assuming that the synth society is, is um, sufficient to confer on them the, um, the state actor status or that they're, they're somehow a private group of people? Um, assuming that, that they are, you know, their society is state actors and if there was some kind of analogy to U.S. law, there would be numerous Sixth Amendment violations, even though there's overwhelming evidence that Sutra is probably liable for um, premeditated murder, um, you know, she would still be entitled under our system to numerous procedural protections under the Sixth Amendment, um, a right to a speedy and public trial, right to a jury trial, um, right to confront witnesses and to compel witnesses to come and testify in her favor, assistance of counsel. Um, and if you just kill a person, obviously that um, those rights are, are not, not active. Um, there's also a due process issue in just really basic. People can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property, but especially life without due process of law. Um, so all of those would be pretty big problems with um, the way Dr. Soong has handled the situation. And then that doesn't even get to the plot inconsistencies of, okay, well, Dr. Soong has seemed to switch sides and he's convinced that Sutra is a problem but that doesn't register for him that he should also try and stop Soji as well. Yeah, it's just like, dude, <laughs> just, was it because she was a different model? Maybe that does, it doesn't work on her, but he's still like in charge. He can tell everyone like you do the, you know, you play the video. It's like everyone would pivot at that point in time especially Soji, who's, you know, getting ready to commit mass genocide. It's, that's a great way to tell everyone what you're doing is wrong. But that's not what they do. So, so here we are picking up the pieces afterwards. Uh, so we, we get our heroes trying to do a nice, uh, you know, attempted bombing, you know, what would normally be like a terrorist attack. Um, and, you know, that's kind of stopped by, well, uh, bad soccer play and Soji's ab uh, ability to catch uh, the, the explosive device. Uh, one, why throw it to her? And two, why not just aim for the base of the device? I just, again, weird storytelling and I don't know why the director chose to do that and why the script said what it said. But here we are, and uh, Steve, do you, do you want to take this one and trying to figure out, is this a terrorist attack? Is this justified? Is it vandalism? What do you think? 
So, so there are definitely some odd issues here. Um, you know, first, let me just respond to one earlier point in potential defense of the writers. Uh, you know, why did why was Sun able to so easily deactivate Sutra, and why did he not use that money often device on Soji? There is an episode in Next Generation. I cannot remember what it is. No, no, actually, I do now. It's um, at the beginning of Insurrection, when Data is malfunctioned and Picard has to go find him, and he has to deactivate Data, and they tell him, "Yes, it will work." but you have to be within three feet of him. Like the range is very, very limited. You have to get very, very close. Uh, so it's possible that it's a device like that where Soon can't just point at her across the entire courtyard. He has to get really close to her at the point when she's trying to summon these odd other synthetics. Um, it's probably very difficult for him to get so close to her. I'm thinking that that's, that's probably what the writers would say in response to, uh, to our race at that point. Um, you know, whether you accept that or not, I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, the attempted bombing of the beacon, you know, it, it's some challenges here in our tr attempts to analyze it are once again, do we class, how do we classify this group of synthetics? Are they uh, a separate civilization? Are they their own people? Are they their own government? Uh, I think they certainly meet some of the requirements, you know, they, uh, they have their own society. Uh, they have some kind of hierarchy, some kind of chain of command. Sung seems to be in charge. Uh, you know, they had sent out two synthetics years ago to try diplomatic relations to be recognized as some kind of a nation state or planet or you know whatever what have you, but some form of government. So you know, if we in that sense that the you know this government was about to engage in some act of war. You know, of course, the government, you know, the synthetics would say, well, we were being attacked already, so we, this was our response. Um, you know, we could try to defend our band of heroes by saying yes, they're, they're not terrorists, they are sort of freedom fighters, or they're trying to protect the rest of, uh, well, trying to prote protect all of organic life. You know, the odd thing is, how would you, how would you conduct such a proceeding? I mean, how would they ever be brought to justice? It would be if uh, you know, if the the our heroes are unsuccessful, which they are, you know, with, with the soccer ball trick, Soji throws the ball way up in the air and it detonates, and you know, it does not achieve its purpose. And let's say the synthetics follow through. If they follow through and extinguish all organic life, well, then this is a moot point. I mean, why even put these people on trial? They're dead. You know, um, if they are foiled in some other way, which ultimately happens then again, it almost seems like a moot point because we make peace. So it's kind of hard to envision um, the circumstance in which our heroes would have to answer. But if they did, would it be a trial? Would it be a war crimes tribunal? Um, you know, if, if you classify the synthetics as their own nation state and our people, our heroes as trying to conduct a bombing, well then yes, there are absolutely um, laws that they're violating, they could be prosecuted for murder, for attempted murder, um, for a number of crimes. Um, and then it raises a couple other questions. Are that it's life? And uh, how do we kind of calculate that? So, I mean, there, there are a couple ways to cut this. And the way that we extricate ourselves from the episode is, you know, ends up mooting the point. But uh, it, it does raise some interesting issues. I would take the point of view that they were operating under a state of war 
and destroying the beacon was a justified military target, even though they're not state actors at this point, they're at best privateers is, is one way to looking at it or operating under uh, self-defense doctrine of we have to do this in order to protect all organic life from getting wiped out by you know, these moody androids that rather be doing yoga. So I, I, I don't see a legal issue with them, but uh, Christine, your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I would have, I would have tried necessity or self-defense. I think it kind of boils down to too, whether you view this as a, a crime against property or whether you think that this weird throwing of the ball almost at Soji, you know, makes some kind of difference in this analysis. And then she has to throw it really high to prevent it from exploding onto, onto people. Um, but certainly if you didn't attribute um, any intention to, to harm any of the synths, if you just viewed it as a, okay, well, you're trying to, you know, bull up this tower and you're not trying to hurt a person, um, you know, you might think of, you might brainstorm any number of crimes. Um, that could apply either under federal or state law, but, but you might also, at least under the California formulations of necessity and um, self-defense slash defense of others, um, you might see if you could try and defend them on that basis. Um, it's hard. I, I feel like the, the, the throwing of the bomb in such a strange way changes the facts in such a way that it's hard to conceptualize how this how this should get in, analyzed. Yeah, I, I don't understand why he threw it at her at the control device as opposed to at the tower. Because if you take down the tower, you won. You know, the, the, the controls aren't sending a signal to any place because the tower's down. And you can then, um, you know, take other decisive action. But, you know, they had to figure out a way for Picard to be making a sacrifice in order to inspire them, so they lead by example. That would be my read of that. <sighs> wow. <laughs> let's get, so let's get into what was one of the more entertaining part, parts of this, and that's uh, uh, Seven versus Nerissa. And never minding the fact that the way Seven held her phaser rifle is allowed Nerissa to knock it out of her hand and thus there should have been a quick fight of just vaporizing the Romulan, but no, we had to have a good slugfest. Uh, so, Christine, do you, do you think that there's any legal theory that highlights Seven killing Nerissa is in any way justified or is this just revenge? So um, I, when I initially wrote this down as an issue, I was on the side of just revenge. But then when I sat down and I watched um, more carefully and in connection to the elements, I felt a little bit better about it. The, the fact, I mean, the most problematic fact is that she does say this is for you. <laughs> and she later admits that she's taking revenge for his death. And so you can draw some very negative inferences from that. Um, but if you just sort of watch the sequence of events and then ask, you know, okay, so is the, the seven reasonably believe that 
someone, either she or whoever's on the La Serena, is in imminent danger of being killed or suffering great bodily injury. Well, yeah, she probably does because Nurse is attempting to use the Borg cube weapons against the La Serena, which is now in the air. Um, so I think you can get rid of that element pretty easily. Um, maybe a little bit harder is the requirement that she has to believe reasonably that the immediate use of deadly force was necessary to defend against the danger. Um, and so, you know, again, she disarms Nerissa initially, but then you get to the point where Nerissa grabs the phaser and starts physically fighting with her. And presumably if she wins, she's going to go back to shooting the lost arena out of the sky. And you see the targeting system is still acquiring the lost arena as they're doing their hand to hand combat. Um, and so that's something that could help seven. And also the fact that, um, Seven knows that Nerissa has harmed other people in the past, including the XBs and the Borg and Hugh. So I think that cuts in favor of her belief that the need for deadly force is reasonable. Um, those other admissions, you know, they probably suggest that maybe she did use more force than was reasonably necessary. I don't know, Steve, what do you think? You know, we seem to discuss um, self-defense and murder quite a lot this season. Um, I think I think it's probably helpful to go through some of um, some of how the law works here. You know, in California, yeah, when one is charged with murder and they and a justification defense, typically what that means is they're arguing that they either had to defend, they had to kill the other person because they had to either defend themselves or defend another person from being severely harmed. And so the actual language um, uh, breaks down, you know, gets a little more specific, but it's worth also noting that there, there are sort of two types here of the self-defense, the justification, what some courts call perfect or imperfect. So the basic element is that someone has to, you know, the person who commits the murder has to actually has to really believe that that um, they're under threat of deadly harm, that if they don't do something, then they're going to be severely injured or killed. Uh, and their belief has to be reasonable, that they're objectively, that they were correct in believing so. Uh, so that would be perfect self-defense if they're able to fulfill those elements. That's a total defense. That's justifiable. That could get them off. They, they could walk if they prove that. Um, the lesser form of it is what's often called imperfect self-defense. It's when they subjectively believe that they're under threat of severe harm or deadly, deadly harm, but it turns out that their belief was not reasonable. You know, and that, I mean, someone charges you, you know, with a pen um, and then being charged thinks, oh my God, I'm, I, I really think I'm going to be killed and let me kill that person in response you know, many people may say, well, really, the guy just had a pen. Um, so, it, yes, you subjectively believed you were in danger, but objectively, you were probably wrong to believe so. In that case, the defense operates just to lessen the charge from murder to manslaughter. And the difference there is just the element of malice. Um, did you have malice aforethought, you know, before committing this murder? Um, so, I mean, that's the law. I mean, let's look at the facts. You know, as you had mentioned, Christine, what we get is uh, Nerissa, she's at the targeting controls, targeting the La Serena, which is in the air, acquiring the target, 
and our heroes Picard and Gerardi are on there. And we know that Nerissa um, wants to shoot them down. Seven happens upon that, points, pulls out her weapon, tells Nerissa to back off. Um, you know, at this at this point, I think if, if Seven just shot her, um, you know, blasted her to stop her from committing or from firing on the Picard, uh, you know, I, I think she's got a pretty decent case for defense of others. Um, the elements I described were talking about defense of self. If you convert it to defense of someone else, uh, the same elements apply in very much the same way. So I think Seven would have a pretty good case there. But then it gets odd, you know, as Josh points out, um, Seven gets close enough where she gets disarmed. And what we get, and I, I think this is a writer's, um, uh, you know, it's sort of tip of the hat. You know, as, an, as the audience, what do we want to see? We've got this big, bad Narissa. Um, who do we want to see to fight her? Of course, we want our hero Seven, you know, the queen. And we get that. And so this is a moment of fan service. Um, and they duke it out. And then Seven, <laughs> Seven has defeated her. Uh, and but then unfortunately goes the extra step and you know, kind of throws her off and says this is for Hugh. You know that's a problematic fact if you're Seven's defense attorney trying to argue um, self-defense. I I think you can still make a good case for self-defense or certainly for defense of others, and that that's really where we're coming from is defense of others. Seven reasonably believed this would be the argument reasonably believed that, uh, but for her intervention, Narissa was going to fire on the card. And part of the evidence there uh, supporting that would be Seven knows that Nerissa's killed a lot of the XBs and that, you know, infuriated Seven. And we've seen Nerissa just go around, just she doesn't think twice about killing people. So why would she think twice about killing Picard if she could? So I think Seven is pretty reasonable there. But, um, you know, any defense attorney who's trying to protect Seven here from a charge of murder is going to have to deal with that statement of, well, this is for Hugh. Yeah, I mean, it seems a little bit more like revenge than uh, than self-defense defense of others. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, Josh? Uh, it was fine up until she, she being seven, threw Nerissa off the ledge. Then it turned into murder because the danger had passed. The villain had been subdued. And then it was just simply a summary execution. Now, that's not Star Trek. Like this isn't uh, that. That we've seen seven do revenge killings already. So, you know, this season, you know, jaded lover goes in and goes in for the kill. And while Nerissa was dangerous and should have had the death penalty, and I would not have been sad if there'd been a phaser fight and she'd been vaporized. That would not have bothered me. However, what seven's actions really show a malice that's inconsistent with Star Trek values. And that's disturbing. Yeah, have it helped the person that crosses seven. She's already wiped out two people who have crossed her before. Um, she's really becoming quite a vigilante. Yeah, it's, it's very Punisher-esque, you know, type behavior. And that's, that's not what Star Trek's supposed to be. You know, in every other Star Trek series, you know, a villain subdued and the captain, whether it's Kirk or to, to Janeway, offers a hand. It's like, you don't have to die here today. Seven skipped that class. You know, whether it was the, the Romulan commander at the end of Balance of Terror or literally 
every other show has that happen at least once, they skip it. And she just goes in for the kill. And that, that really bothered me. Because uh, everything was fine defense of others or self-defense up until the summary execution. We have a more ruthless seven in a more ruthless Star Trek world, apparently. Yeah, but, but morals are universal. Like, they're, they're not fluctuate. They don't fluctuate. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's like people who defend incest on uh, Game of Thrones by saying, like, well, that was their culture. No, it's not. It's wrong. Do you feel the same about slavery? Oh, it was, that's just how the South lived. It's still wrong. And we knew it then, and we know it now. It's wrong. And you can say murdering someone in cold blood is wrong. But that's just me and my soapbox. Uh, well, I don't think Seven disagrees with you, actually, because remember in the episode where she kills that former lover, she talks to Picard for a moment, and then she decides to beam back down uh-huh. and tells, you know, tells the lady, well, I want Picard to at least believe <laughs> that things are better than they are, but I'm still going to kill you. I just don't want him to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it worse. Like, <laughs> that doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. Well, Seven seems to be conscious of this, and she's, you know, drinking with Rios at the end of the show, you know, clearly aware that she's keeps making the same wrong choice, yet she keeps making the same wrong choice. <laughs> she's killing people that deserve to die, but she's making the decision, taking it out, away from the courts. Yeah, there's a, there's a big therapy lesson there that needs to be had. So, yeah. Uh, now, let's, let's get into, you know, the scene that either some people could say is Oscar-worthy from the performances, or it's just, why do we need to say Data die again? And why the hell are you going to leave his consciousness floating around in this virtual heaven when you've been building bodies for other androids, can't you just pop them into one? So let's get into the assisted termination of Data's consciousness of the, can you do me a favor? Which is, you know, raises big issues with, uh, you know, the, the, the assisted suicide uh, laws, which typically prohibit the doctor pulling the plug. The, the patient has to be the one who can self-medicate so it's not the doctor executing someone, killing someone in violation of their Hippocratic Oath. So uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, you, Christine, or Steve who broke down these, these issues. Uh, who, 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 who put together these notes? So I think I did a first crack, but I think Steve has some notes on this one. So okay. maybe Steve should go first. Uh, I'm fine either way if you want to take a crack at it, Christine, or um, or I can jump into it. Um, either either way. Um, so I think um, th- that's right, Josh. Um, so so California itself still criminalizes assisted suicide unless it actually is in compliance with the End of Life Option Act. Um, it's still a felony, um, and the End of Life Option Act imposes limits, some of which you alluded to. Um, that probably couldn't be complied with here at all, in large part because that act was designed to apply to humans and not to Android consciousnesses that exist in a complex quantum simulation. Um, but, but for example, as you mentioned, they have to self-administer um, data 
needs assistance from others in order to terminate his consciousness. Um, there's a series of procedural steps that have to be made. So, um, uh, and, and the person who's making the request has to do it on their own behalf. Somebody else can't do it for them. Um, and here Picard has to go back and tell people, oh yeah, this is what um, Data wanted. Um, and then as far as the procedure itself, there's you know multiple requests that have to be submitted and there's a, a difference. There's a, so there's oral requests and a written request. The oral requests have to be 15 days apart. The written request has um, requirements that it, that it has to fulfill. There have to be witnesses. So obviously none of that is happening here. Um, and so, I mean, one thought is are the relevant policy considerations just different when it comes to terminating a consciousness that exists in a simulation versus terminating, terminating um, uh, a human life. And, you know, maybe some of these procedural steps are impractical as applied to data situation. Um, but, and the basic concern is the same. You don't, you don't want to, you want to make sure that, that 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 person actually is exercising that voluntary choice when they're of sound mind and, and competent and able to do that. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because the law is not designed for a disembodied intelligence floating around in a computer system. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? Those are good observations. And I think we're run what we're running into again is the difficulty we have uh, when technology advances so far to really blur the lines um, between life and death. Uh, and and then how does the law kind of deal with that? You know, certainly when we've got uh, we, we've we've got some clear demarcations about what can and cannot be done to keep someone alive uh, when if someone's on later that is. Um, but we haven't encountered the situation where someone's being kept alive on a disk drive of some kind or some sort of um, you know hard drive, and they could potentially be reinjected into an android body and voila, they're back. Uh, so then what, you know, do we have an obligation to make sure that that disc is preserved for however long it takes to get it to a body? Uh, you know, th there are some odd questions or some, some questions that haven't really been answered before. With regard to, you know, the law in this area, this, as many people can probably imagine, it has been an area of controversy. The courts have struggled to draw some clear demarcations, but there are some rules so, you know, we start off with the idea that a patient has the right to refuse treatment. Um, that right is pretty much absolute. They can refuse any treatment that they wish. Uh, and so some of the early euthanasia cases came up in that context where people were being kept alive by ventilator or by some medical assistive devices. And they said, you know, this really is no life. I'm in pain. I can't do anything and I want to die. Um, so let me die, basically unplug the machine and let me um, pass away because you know, what we have is a person who's being, but for the machine, they would die. And the courts have said, okay, well, a, a person can say that, they can make that decision. Uh, they have the right to refuse treatment, even if the treatment, even if in so doing, uh, it would kill them, it, it would result in their death. And the origins of the right come from the constitutional right to privacy also to some degree from informed consent, you know, their patient's ability to consent to treatment, consent or refuse to treatment, that is. Um, and so the courts um, took that and then they even 
you know, it, it's a slightly more clear question when we have someone who's terminally ill and, you know, but for the machine, they're going to die. And the courts have said, well, yes, that person can decide to have the plug pulled and um, pass away. And then the courts then later extended that and said, well, we'll also extend it to the point where someone's not actually terminally ill. They're not going to die right away, um, but they still don't want life-saving treatment, sort of non-resuscitation orders or whatnot. Uh, even if the goalpost is further away, the endpoint is further away. Uh, so that's fairly clear. That's medical self-determination. Um, you know, it's not exactly what we have here, though. You know, data is existing in this sort of nether world. Um, and it's not that he's asking him to die, because apparently he doesn't have that ability. And it's hard to kind of draw the analogy here. But if, if data had some ability while existing in this digital nether world to pull the plug, uh, he could do so, and that would be it. You know that there's there's no um, there's no violation of law there. But what he is asking for, and what the courts have struggled with a little more, is assisted suicide. When a person asks for someone else to help them die, and here the court pretty clearly said, as you know, as Christine mentioned, that you know although a person has the right to sort of themselves or allow themselves to pass, they cannot enlist the aid of someone else to take some sort of affirmative step to kill them, to end their life. And that's, that's where we run into our problems. So, you know, data asking Picard, will you unplug the machine or, you know, pull my data disks out and let me pass away? Uh, you know, he's asking a favor from a friend, but under California law, Picard would be in some trouble here, potentially because he is ending the life of data. Um, you know, getting to this thematically, you know, story-wise, it's very odd because I think many viewers entered this episode, certainly I did, expecting someone to die. But it wasn't, and someone did die, but it wasn't the person we really expected. I don't think, I was certainly was not expecting to lose data all over again. Uh, although data you know, by virtue of who he was as an android, I think many fans entertain the idea that he would someday come back to us. We would find another body for him. We would somehow, you know, B4 would evolve to become him again. Um, his information was backed up. You know, he, his memory engrams could have been imprinted on some other, other you know, body. But this episode seems to pretty clearly slam the door shut on any possibility that he will come back. Unfortunately, you know, to the point where we even have Picard saying some last words as they're pulling out the three you know, data cards. Uh, it's, it makes for some emotional viewing and we lose data all over again. I mean, we get him back briefly, a, a nice little conversation with Picard, um, and then we lose him all over again. So, you know, bottom line, you know, data can pull the plug himself, but he really can't under the law, at least California law, he can't ask Picard to do it for him without Picard running into some trouble. Now, another interesting point, I mean, Picard dies, <laughs> you know, and then comes back to life. Um, we haven't had that happen before. And does dying absolve you of your crimes? Or, you know, are you, <laughs> are you still liable for everything? I, I don't know. But we get into some really, uh, really interesting um, legal gymnastics here. So, I don't know, what do you think, Josh or Christine? Uh, my two cents is Data was already dead, and because he doesn't have a body, 
and there's no way for earthly beings to interact with him because he's a computer program at this point in time. So merely asking to be deleted doesn't necessarily raise the issue that it's a live person uh, there. On the flip side, you could say, well, it's like his soul, it's his mind. And moreover, did Song inadvertently like torture him for nearly 20 years by not reconstituting a body form? That just seems super weird and lazy storytelling and like they made no effort to communicate with Theta, but they did preserve him. That's just, it's bizarre storytelling and I think it was a gratuitous sing, uh, scene because we've already seen Data die. Like he died, his sacrifice, you know, like that was that. And then they cheapened it with B4. And and that's also my issue with Picard dying and they cheapen it by having a golem ready, you know, ready to go. So it's like death should mean something. It shouldn't be a free pass of, of being able to make escape hatches. Either kill Picard and make it sad and make it give it meaning or cure his disease and move on. Because right now it's like you get to be a 94 year old again <clears throat> with all the 94-year-old problems that you have, just minus the brain uh, abnormality that, that killed you. So, uh, and, and we, we didn't see the abnormality causing him any problems. There wasn't like, like a nosebleed that he kept trying to cover up. You know, it was, you know, interacting with two different doctors and, and collapsing at the, you know, in part one of the, of the finale. So, I just, I felt it was all very cheap and that's what I didn't like about it. Because if, if they had just killed him off, sacrifice made, everyone being sad and having their acting moments of showing sorrow, cool. But it's all for nothing. It'd be like Wrath of Khan ending with Spock alive. It's like, see, don't worry, everything's better now. It's the whole, death is now meaningless. And you know, they just ended a series with a cure for death. And that's insane. Christine, your thoughts. <laughs> um, so it is an interesting scene. It does make you wonder, has Data really been existing in that, that simulated room this entire time? Because that sounds really unpleasant. <laughs> Very boring if you've been there by himself. Living like Moriarty, kind of, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess we, we shouldn't complain about sheltering in place. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I had, um, I had noted another issue on here about, well, what if Picard didn't want to be transferred into the Golem? What if he didn't want a 94-year-old body, even if he did want to be transferred into... A, a golem. There's definitely some other issues with, um, you know, planning and and consent there. Um, I mean, I think, and it sort of gets into my my overall thoughts on the end of the series as a whole. I mean, I think I think they, that that certain aspects of that were very well done. Um, I think that as far as the things that they prioritized, um, like tying major themes together or, or trying to make the episode have emotional weight, 
um, were more successful um, for me at least, um, but it did seem like they came at the expense of certainly some plot threads. Um, they sacrificed character development for certain characters, although not for Picard. The conversation itself between Data and Picard is very interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I go so far as to say death is. It means that death is meaningless, um, because it does interject this whole idea of having agency over your death. Um, but there's uh, there's definitely room for discussion. We'll put it that way. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, this is also not the first time that we've seen um, <laughs> that we've seen someone who is about to die transfer themselves into an android body. You know, do you, um, yes. Go to season two, the Schizoid Man, Dr. Ira Graves who claimed to be, you know, claimed to have taught Soong all he knew. He said that he was Data's grandfather and he transferred himself into Data. So the memory transfer has been, the memory transfer idea has certainly been around. Um, you know, if we were to look at this from a purely capitalist point of view, um, Alton Soong, you know, he's got himself a gold mine here. Just start churning out these golems and get that mine transfer ready because you've got the fountain of, fountain of youth here. You know, you have solved, you have cheated death and, uh, you could quickly create one of the largest industries in the known galaxy. So, you know. Yeah, and that was kind of toyed with, I think, with the second Mud episode in the original series as well. And again, it just, that, that just irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> dead, dead should be dead, right, Josh? Well, it's, that way it has meaning. That way but let, me a, let, let me ask you then, um, you know, uh, your, your Trek fandom here, were you similarly upset when Spock was brought back in Star Trek Three? That was yes and no. It's like uh, was not was it Hart Bennett? Uh, one of the creators of Star Trek Two wanted nothing to do with Star Trek Three because of that. I think uh, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas, Nicholas Meyer. Meyer yeah. uh, he he was like, no, dead's dead. Right. Uh, that, that's why the sacrifice matters. Uh, with Spock, they at least, they hinted at the plan with the remember line. And um, that I could live with because they realized, hey, wait, maybe we went too far. Um, but yeah, it's, there is extreme sacrifice throughout all of Star Trek Three, uh, And it, and three has the entire theme about doing the right thing, even when you're told not to do it. And thus you have Kirk and crew not knowing that Spock is reanimated, but going, well, we got to save uh, McCoy and make sure that Spock's immortal soul can, you know, have rest. So therefore we're willing to all throw away our careers and go to prison for having this plan. Like, so they, they put it all on the line and it cost Kirk his son and his ship in addition to everything else, but they still do the right thing. And it, and it has that, those themes about aging, about still being relevant, and what are you willing to do uh, when, when faced with the no-win scenario, and, and how you do you define victory. So those themes were there. Now, at the end of Picard, it just felt gratuitous of like, look, we just have this golem right here, and look, everything's okay now. Okay. That, uh I think I see what you're saying. You're saying that you, you didn't feel quite as upset about the death of Spock because 
even though he came back, it was still meaningful because of how much people had to give away in order to bring him back. Uh, there was still this loss and sacrifice. Whereas with Picard, it was like flip a switch. You know, we get a few morning scenes, but hey, he wakes up. How, do you, how are you feeling? Everything's okay now. That was a close one. Yeah. <laughs> Were you bothered by that, Christine? Um, yeah, it was a little neat. Um, I'll say yes. Um, and you kind of could see it coming a mile away, though. Because you know somebody's have to, is going to have to go in the golem, and the odds are overwhelming it's going to be Picard. Yeah, why would they introduce the golem unless they were going <laughs> to use it for something? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it felt cheap in my view. <laughs> so, like, that just didn't like that bothered me. Because uh, it, it ends where it began. It's like, well, now engage. It's like, oh, damn it. Just you cure him and move on. And again, not this, this like complicated hat trick that was like, what, a quarter of the episode? So again, it's, it's nice seeing the acting chops of uh, Sir Patrick Stewart and uh, Brent Spiner, but it was just like, we saw Data die in uh, uh, Nemesis. And now you want to do it again. Yeah. You know, I also wonder, he's real, is he physically being stored on those three sort of cards or cartridges that are pulled out and sort of deactivated? Uh, you know, we've got the virtual cloud today. I mean, couldn't Data's, you know, his memory still be floating around somewhere, you know, in the uh, 24th century, like, interwebs? Maybe. <laughs> so, again, it's just... Yeah, you know, Picard could just pull out his, you know, ad and kind of access Data, say, hey, Data, we're having a situation. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I would have been happier if they had just put Data in the Golem and Data led, you know, the synthetics, like, with, what are you doing? And like, you know, and he led by inspiration and being able to say, stop this, what the, this is wrong. And I, I would have been happier with that uh, as opposed to all the weird inconsistent ways that they could have uh, solved the conflict. Well, doesn't he also say that his, his memory engrams were extracted from the positronic neuron that was salvaged by Maddox? Right. So what would, this, this neuron is really working overtime. What oh, yeah. would stop them from just doing it again? <laughs> a single neuron reconstitutes the entire positronic net. Yeah, right. You know, you know we're, we're, we're being a little um, critical of the writers, and justifiably so as fans. Um, but I will give them credit that we, we do get a nice Picard speed uh, turning Soji. And even though I think we can all see that coming a mile away, that you know, this is the battle for Soji, so to speak, whether she becomes destroyer or not, it, it's still great. Like no one can deliver a speech quite like Jean-Luc Picard. And he appeals not to fear, you know, but to reason. You know, it's kind of like, well, where, where a lot of other people saw disaster and apocalypse, uh, you know, he saw hope and, you know, possibility, inspiration. And thankfully that won out. Um, now, again, it's a little neat at the end, right? We, 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 it's all kind of wrapped up in a little bow because oh the ban on synthetics is over federations at peace now everything's all good it's like well i think there's still quite a bit of work to do uh but i did like that we got that scene you know picard essentially gives that speech as he's like <laughs> dying, right you know for real dying at that point at least 
Yeah, and it's it's nice to see him at the helm of a ship one more time. And you know, it was it was fun. And uh, I it's it's a shame that we didn't see shots fired between the two fleets, but you know that's that's also real life because you know we avoided thermal nuclear war by the Russians and the United States not mm -hmm. going at it you know, between our fleets. So, yay, we're still here. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And was it nice to see uh, Captain Riker back in action? Yeah, so who, did you suggest that? Or which one of, it wasn't me, because my money I was- I think it was, I think it was, yeah, it was Steve for the win on that, because I think I was hoping, well, I was hoping for Worf or, um, or Jordy, it was a little sad that didn't happen, but I think yeah. Steve called it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, and I was also on the Wharf Jordy camp because I thought the Enterprise E would be a good way to slam dunk the the ending, and the fact that all the ships were the same class was weird. I mean, that was a yeah. little reminiscent of the original series where we only saw Constitution class uh, Federation starships because that's probably all that they had made uh, because of the budget, and then. If you remember in the original series too, Josh, that uh, Klingons were using Romulan ships and vice versa, because frankly, they just, they just didn't have the budget to make all the ships. Yeah, so it's like, we get that, but it was like, where was there a shortage on modeling? I mean, like, this is all CGI. Like what, uh, and like in DS, DS9 during the Dominion War, we saw everything underway for that those fights. Oh, those were epic shots, yeah. Yeah. So that was weird, but it was nice to see Riker in the captain's chair. And it, in you know, logically, you know, you were right. It makes a lot of sense that after, you know, uh, Picard and Soji beam up, that uh, Riker would start making some uh, calls because he's like, it, you know, like you could imagine Troy with like, so uh, who are you going to call first? Like she would not, you know, one, she would know her husband's intent. Two, she probably would be breaking out the address book too uh, for this, where it's like, okay, what ship do you want to go take command of right now in order to go charge into battle? Like light the bat signal, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, again, the, and, but you think that would also be like calling in LaForge and Wharf and everybody yeah. else, you know, and from multiple ships, you know, that had served with Picard that were now captains or admirals who would go like, no, we're going to tag in on this one. Grandpa needs help. Did you think it was a little odd that Riker, you know, he he's there for the confrontation, then he leaves and says, you know, I'll leave this in your capable hands. And, you know, a few seconds later, Picard, Picard dies. It's like, oh, oh, well. Yeah, again, that, that was lame because kind of weird storytelling. Like if they had escorted them out, that would make sense. Yeah. But he wouldn't, it's going like, you always have my back. And now he's dying. Like he would... <laughs> You know, it's like with that starship, it, you know, and all the resources, like they would just leave. It's like the rest of the fleet go, a couple of us are going to hang here, hang back and take care of this. Yeah, would Riker react, if, uh, you know, when he hears, oh, you know, after you won that war and after you left Picard, yeah, he died about 30 seconds later. <laughs> and Riker's like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> what? Maybe we should have stayed. Should have stayed. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Universal Armageddon was uh, about to start, and then, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, uh, just super, just, again, weird storytelling, weird storytelling. 
So uh, closing line, and uh, uh, Christine, you you got this with uh, you know that the ban on synthetics has been lifted. So uh, Soji is free to travel, and Picard says, "Yeah, me too." Um, what's your thoughts on on that? Well, I think it's interesting to think about what the scope of the right to travel would be in the Star Trek universe. So in in our system, it encompasses a number of, of different aspects of the right to travel. So it covers interstate travel. So things like uh, the right to enter and leave another state, um, the right to be treated as a, a visitor rather than an alien when you're temporarily present in a, in a state that isn't your home state. Um, and for if you decide to move state and become a permanent resident in another state, the right to be treated the same way as other citizens in that state are. And those protections are, are pretty strong. Um, those, are, those are considered fundamental rights, and there's various um, parts of the Constitution that protect those. The Constitution also protects the right to international travel um, as an aspect of substantive due process, but it, it doesn't receive as strong a protection as, um, as interstate travel. Um, so it can be regulated within the bounds of due process, meaning it, it, a deprivation might be upheld if it's procedurally fair and justified under the circumstances. Um, so it's interesting to think about how that would apply in the context of the Federation, because it doesn't seem like it's just open season uh, for, for any kind of travel in that universe, right? So perhaps might there be a greater right to travel for, for citizens of members to and from other member planets of the Federation as opposed to travel into regions of space where there's no Federation presence. Um, you know, the other thing that at case law holds is um, it has held that there's not a right to travel by a particular means. And in Star Trek, you see various different kinds of ways to power a ship throughout the series. Um, but, but you might posit, well, you, could, you, know, you probably couldn't cut off the right to space travel entirely unless there's a good reason, for example, your Harvey Mudd. But, um, but I was curious to hear your guys' thoughts on what exactly is the scope of Soji's right to travel? Do you think, do you think she can just go anywhere? Are there possible restrictions on her ability to travel? Steve, why don't you um, go first? Yeah, they don't really... <laughs> reaction is interesting because when we first hear about the ban on synthetics, uh, we're led to believe, I think, that the ban is on any further research for synthetics or creating further synthetics. So just a ban on having synthetics exist at all, uh, which, I mean, one would imagine that would also encompass a ban on synthetics traveling. I mean, if they're not allowed to exist, how can they travel, right? So it's sort of Soji's saying this at the end, well, now I, I'm free to travel. I think what's more appropriate is more would be for her to say, well, now I don't have to hide, um, which is what she was doing before. Um, she was sort of one of those ultimate double agents, didn't even know she was a double agent. You know, she didn't even know that she was synthetic for quite some time. And I, I think it'd probably be more appropriate to have had her say something along those lines, like, well, now I can, uh, now I can be myself uh, without fear of any sort of reprisal. I think that's probably what the intent was. Uh, in terms of like I'm free to travel out in the open, open and obvious, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, the interesting point too is, well, Picard too. I mean, isn't he technically a synth now? He's got a synthetic body. I mean, I suppose you could, 
try to dissect it a bit and say he's got a human mind in a synthetic bodies. So is he human? I don't know. Yeah, I, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> there's uh, so much to un unpack there. I think of the privileges and immunities clause and being able to travel in between states and to designate classes of people as being able to not travel between states could be done because of a quarantine. And, uh, but say you want to ban everyone from New York going anyplace, you have a few hoops to jump through in order to pull that off. Uh, but this is saying, you know, a specific class of people shouldn't exist. Yeah. That's really un-American. And, and probably the Federation realized after uh, the, the duplicity of Commodore O uh, that, that they were hoodwinked and are going to make some life changes. Um, it also raises the specter that one, uh, O is responsible for the Mars attack. And I don't think Riker would just let her go. I think they would want to blow her out of the sky. And uh, if ever there was a kill order written for someone, it'd be her. On the flip side, getting her alive and having a trial would be yeah. helpful for everyone to understand what had happened, the scope of the conspiracy, and to shatter any prejudice against synthetics by highlighting that a Romulan spy took control of Starfleet security and that the best place to commit murder is in front of Starfleet command because that's what she did uh, without consequence. So uh, go after her for, for everything and so people will understand the scope. Uh, it's part of the reason why there are you know, crazy conspiracy theories about the assassination of JFK, one man, because Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. If Oswald had been on trial, the conspiracy craziness around Kennedy would have been very different because a trial would have aired all of that as opposed to just the Warren Commission, which didn't have public hearings. So a good public trial would be a great way to uh, highlight everything evil that O did. Um, on the flip, you know, just as we were able to prosecute some of the people involved with 9-11. Uh, but at the end of the day, we did put out a hit on uh, bin Laden because of the complexity in trying to bring him back alive. Um, so, and, and there are rules of war with that on, you know, if he had just surrendered, they would not have been able to shoot him. So, uh, so again, with O, uh, kind of similar goal of, can you capture her or do you just, go in guns blazing and, you know, try to assassinate her. Yeah, it's a little surprising that he doesn't follow her, just even in an abundance of caution, right? Yes. And I, I agree. I think it, it might be pretty embarrassing for the Federation and Starfleet to have to admit their mistake, but under the circumstances, radical transparency might be the best way for everybody to regain their trust in the Federation and Starfleet. And look how high up O was. I mean, she was way high, chief of Starfleet security. So how much is going to have to change really? I mean, they're going to have to change all the codes, everything that O ever knew, because that's all now information that the Zod Bosch and the Romulans, you know, they've now the Starfleet is aware that um, they've had, they've been privy to that information all along. 
you know, O, I think, is an interesting character. And I think that, uh, Josh, you bring up a good point that having a trial would be the way for a society to come to terms with these crimes and to sort of heal or move on and to deal with the Mars tragedy, you know, that 9-11 moment earlier, I think. I think that would be um, that would be the way to go if they can bring her to justice rather than just sort of, you know, sort of gun her down. Um, but sort of story question too: um, Did you guys find it odd too that Oh, after hearing Picard's speech and after seeing Soji stand down, suddenly says, "Okay, we're good," and then you know we'll we'll retreat. Um, I found that to be surprising. I mean, you know, Commodore O or whatever her name is, she's life to this cause, this cause that has been carried on by the Zotvash, this torch for thousands of years, and suddenly they can do an about face in a few moments, like, oh, well, I'll be darned, that synthetic was not the destroyer, so, okay, we'll retreat, we were wrong. Um, and she does, comes to terms with that so quickly, which I found a little hard to believe. Um, I don't know, what did you guys think? I thought it was difficult to, I mean, right before that, she says, prepare to fight, which is kind of like a declaration of war almost. Yeah. So I thought it was pretty surprising that, that she, um, she, she backtracked. I thought we were going to see a space battle. Yeah, I did too. And thus that bothered me. It's like, come on. <laughs> um, you were not happy with the ending, I can see, Josh. <laughs> it's just there was, yeah, there was there was just disappointment. I mean, there there was stuff that was brilliant, and there was stuff that was lame. And it was, it's weird to have both and have that kind of inconsistent story where it's some of it's really good and some of it's like, eh, that's weird. So. There still needs to be some fallout, you know. Oh, brought to justice, um, figuring out what what happened with the Mars attack. Uh, and then as we, I guess we can kind of end where we started maybe, but we I think it was Christine that pointed out in the very beginning, what's the deal with Gerardi? You know, she's just happily a member of the crew now after having committed multiple crimes, including the, you know, killing of Bruce Maddox. When Picard says engage, if I recall correctly, I don't think they say where they're going, but really wouldn't the appropriate um, destination be, okay, let's take, uh, let's go to the nearest starbase because Gerardi's got an appointment with a uh, trial. She is on charge, you know. She's uh, she's going to be charged for engage, you know. And seven, right? Yeah, seven went and butchered some people too. So we're har harboring a couple of uh, killers here. Two women have killed, like, yeah. So that's yeah. super weird. <laughs> You know, Star Trek, you know, highlights forgiveness and people acknowledge, acknowledging mistakes and moving forward. There's a, a lot of, of uh, issues with just the complete lack of consequences for those actions and acts because it's murder. It's like you don't get a mulligan on that. Right. It's, it's a really bad unresolved thread. I mean, I, perhaps... They could go to Starbase 12. Would that be too much to ask? Yeah. I just just to stop. <laughs> Check in. For a quick trial, you know. <laughs> For um, a quick trial, yes, a quick one. <laughs> hey, these two ladies, maybe, some pardons. <laughs> it's just... 
Right. Maybe, maybe as we learned from Star Trek Four, the best way to defend yourself from any court martial or trial is, you know, save the world, which they have done. So I guess they're good, you know? <laughs> yeah, but the crew of the Enterprise didn't murder anyone in Star Trek Three. They fought Klingons and destroyed some property, namely the aforementioned USS Enterprise, but that was it. So, like, no one in Starfleet Command gets killed. They skipped that uh, uh, with with, with uh, Girardi and Seven. So, so again, just very weird. Um, love it. Uh, I was grateful to see it each week. I'm ecstatic for season two. I hope they do something fun and creative with Guinan. So, and uh, there are definitely other characters they can catch up with. So. What, what do you guys want to see from season two? You know, as I've said, wish before, list. <laughs> I, I'm happy if it was just Patrick Stewart reading wine pairings. You know, I would be grateful to have that. But um, again, some bold idea moving forward, and I they need to move past AI because they've kind of beaten that one to the to death. Yeah, I agree. Definitely some some plots that don't revolve around a nemesis that is in the form of an AI. And hopefully some more development of some of these characters that didn't get as much attention. You know, like almost all of the crew besides Picard. <laughs> I would definitely love to see um, the return of other Trek characters, next generation characters. Um, and see what they're up to. You know, the one that we're really left wondering about the most is Beverly. You know, so, so let's see what happened with Beverly Crusher and hopefully Worf, uh, see LaForge on screen. There's a lot of people that we could see that haven't been mentioned by name or either have been mentioned by name but have not shown up. Um, I, I would love to see more, you know, and see more of Starfleet too. Yeah, and uh, this was the first time I was able to get a good look at the uh, Com Insignia, which was like the future episodes of you know, where, where we saw either Deep Space Nine that was like 30 years in the future. So that at least matched. And I wasn't sure if it matched on Clancy or O. Maybe I just didn't get a good look at it, but it was literally visible on Riker's uh, outfit or uniform. And that, that was kind of neat to see. So anyway, it was, uh, um, it was fun and it was nice to be able to cover each episode and stay tuned for more. And so for everyone, uh, stay inside, don't go anywhere, stay inside, order delivery, all, all is well and uh, stay healthy. So everyone, thank you for your time and we'll see you soon. <laughs>